This King Air fixed-wing medical airplane is flying across the beautiful Gulf of Alaska on its way to an island in southeastern Alaska when it suddenly takes a right turn and rapidly descends. The aircraft never makes its way to its intended destination and is not found for nearly two more months. Four years later, an eerily similar incident occurs in Hawaii with a similar aircraft and the same company. Two months after that, and just two days prior to this recording, another fixed-wing aircraft, again from the very same company, spirals out of control until it impacts the ground. How come this keeps happening? Why do these stories seem so similar? And what in the world do the Golden State Warriors NBA basketball team have anything to do with this story? All of that coming up on this episode of The Dr. Medic. Now, I have been working on this Alaska incident for several months and had the entire story ready to go. And then the Hawaii life crash happened in December and I had to put this story on hold since they were the same company and had so many similarities. And then just as I was ready to move forward with the story again, the same company had another fatal fixed wing crash just two days ago. The stories are just too intertwined to be excluded and I wanted to be able to talk about them all at once. And so with that being said, let's get started. Now this is the first story I've done on a fixed wing crash related to the EMS world. And in full disclosure, I have never worked on a fixed wing aircraft as a paramedic, but there are obviously many similarities, especially from a clinical standpoint, but many, many differences when it comes to the aviation side of things. So here's a quick little background on the differences between rotor wing EMS and fixed wing EMS. And as you probably know, rotor wing or helicopter EMS or air ambulances is extremely common all around the world, especially here in the United States. Helicopters are an amazing tool for EMS as they can be stationed you know, just about anywhere, such as at hospitals or fire stations, or just have their own standalone base. From the time they are dispatched, an EMS helicopter can be up in the air and on the way to the patient, usually in less than 10 minutes. And probably most importantly, is that the helicopter can land at many unimproved landing sites, making it quite easy for the helicopter to get right to the patient and then take off again quickly to then get the patient to their ultimate definitive care. The trade-off on the helicopter is that most of them can really only fly in visual conditions and they typically have a much slower cruise speed which might be anywhere from around 100 to 180 knots and they usually are a little bit smaller inside of the aircraft. They are also typically limited to a range of somewhere around 150 miles. Now fixed-wing aircraft are excellent tools for patient retrieval mainly when flying much longer distances. Fixed-wing can really fly just about any distance but is typically reserved for flights over a couple hundred miles and they are able to fly at speeds anywhere from two to 300 miles per hour for the turboprop planes and over 400 knots for the jets. And almost all of them would be able to fly IFR on a routine basis. While they are not typically used for scene flights, in some parts of the country, they actually may be the only resource available for medical evacuation of a patient. The majority of fixed-wing patient flights really would be patients who are at some type of rural healthcare facility and need a long transport time to a tertiary care hospital 
hospital, usually in a big metropolitan city. But they obviously cannot land directly at a hospital, so they have to land at some type of neighboring airport and then transport the patient the rest of the way by ground ambulance. Now, oftentimes, a typical fixed-wing flight might look something like this. If it is a scene flight, a ground ambulance would usually respond to a patient on a regular 911 call. Whoever the ground paramedic or even the EMT might be makes the decision that the patient needs to be transported all the way to a big city for something like a priority one or major trauma, a heart attack, or maybe an acute stroke. But the drive may be three or four hours, which simply would be too long for these types of patients. Likewise, a rotor wing aircraft may also take too long as the helicopters will be more limited by weather as well as their fuel. The ambulance will then usually drive the patient to a rural local airport where the fixed wing is based, transfer care to the flight crew, who will then fly the patient to the city. And once they get to the city, the flight crew will then have to meet another ground ambulance at a local airport and then continue the rest of the trip to the hospital via a local ground ambulance. This same type of setup might also occur if the patient was actually in a rural hospital first. The only difference would be is that the first ambulance would have to transport the flight crew from that little rural airport to the hospital to then make first patient contact. These types of flights are very common around the country and are usually flown in aircraft such as a Cessna 421, a Pilatus PC-12, and with some of the most common aircraft being Beechcraft King Airs, especially the C-90 and even the bigger Air 200. Fixed-wing flights can also be flown much longer distances in bigger jets such as a Cessna Citation or a Learjet 45. These bigger jets are usually reserved for super long flights and can be used for emergency patient conditions, but also are very commonly used to fly people home if they become injured or sick while traveling or on vacation or out of the country. And it is also quite common for larger air ambulance operators to have many different aircraft in their fleet, including multiple rotor wings, as well as different fixed wing models to meet the demand of whatever their coverage area might be. And so while everything I just went over for fixed wing are pretty general descriptions of how things work, there are actually many very unique circumstances for two of these accidents, as one of them took place in Alaska and the other one in Hawaii. All paramedicine and EMS crews across the world are already naturally very tight-knit and close to one another, and the same can be said of a fixed-wing flight crew. But this overall camaraderie and involvement with the community is vastly magnified in a place like Hawaii or Alaska. Both of these locations have huge percentages of indigenous native populations as part of their communities. And fixed-wing aircraft are used heavily in both of these locations due to both water and mountain limitations. And when it comes to Alaska, there are still many, many native populations that are living in villages all around the state that have absolutely no access to them whatsoever other than by plane or by boat. Helicopters are certainly still used in some of the more populated areas where the flights might be shorter and they do not have to fly over a whole lot of mountains, but the overwhelming majority of the flights are made by fixed wing. And in short, these flight crews are well known by their communities, especially in Hawaii and Alaska, and are often all considered part of one big giant family. This makes losing an aircraft in these areas even worse, as the loss is felt deep within all of these villages and all of these communities. Now, there are basically three fixed-wing flight services in Alaska. You have LifeMed Alaska with their corporate headquarters out of Anchorage. You have Airlift Northwest, which is technically based out of the University of Washington in Seattle. And then the company for all three of these fatal accidents goes by the name of Guardian Flight and was originally owned and operated locally in Alaska, but then was sold to a larger company. 
Guardian's headquarters is in South Jordan, Utah, and their official operator is now Medtrans, which is located in Denton, Texas. Medtrans has over 100 aircraft in their fleet and are under the corporate umbrella of Global Medical Response, otherwise known as GMR, who themselves have over 8,000 ambulances, 372 helicopters, 127 planes, and they even have 167 fire trucks where they operate private fire departments. Now, Guardian themselves has roughly 62 bases, which are located all throughout Alaska, Hawaii, and across the northern and western parts of the lower 48 states. Now, their aircraft fleet is made up of Beechcraft, King Air, C-90Bs and 200s, Pilatus PC-12s, Cessna Caravans, Learjets, and they also have AS-350 and H-130 helicopters. The accident aircraft for the Alaska crash was this Beechcraft King Air 200 with tail number N13LY. We say Beechcraft as that was the original company, but technically Beechcraft became Raytheon back in 1980, which was then actually bought by Textron Aviation in 2014. So technically the company is now Textron, but I'm still gonna call it a Beechcraft. Now this aircraft was rated as a six seat low wing airplane and was manufactured in 2000. It was powered by two Pratt & Whitney PT6A 52 turboprop engines each making 850 horsepower. Now each engine had a total of 1,721 hours on them, which were last inspected just 84 hours ago, with the airframe itself having a total of 5,226 hours. Now the King Air 200 can cruise around 283 knots. It has a pressurized cabin, a normal range of around 900 to 1,000 miles, and has a maximum altitude of 35,000 feet. The airplane was equipped with two tandem LifePort stretcher systems and aerostats which are used to load the patient into the aircraft and then secure them during transport. An important note that this aircraft was configured with two flight crew seats in the cockpit. Now the LifePort tandem stretcher systems were installed on the right side of the cabin portion of the airplane and three passenger seats were on the left side of the cabin portion of the airplane, two forward facing and one facing to the aft. Also very important to note is that this airplane did have a cockpit voice recorder even though they were not required to. And per federal regulation, turbine multi-engine aircraft with six or more passenger seats and requiring two pilots manufactured prior to April 7th of 2010 and operated under Part 91 or 135 certificates must be equipped with a cockpit voice recorder that records a minimum of the last 30 minutes of the aircraft operation. This aircraft did meet most of those requirements but required only one pilot and therefore the cockpit voice recorder, and more importantly, its proper operation was actually not required. This will definitely become more important later in this story. This aircraft was being flown by a single 63-year-old male pilot named Patrick. Patrick was a super experienced pilot with a total of 17,774 flight hours with almost 1,700 hours on this type and was also rated in the Learjet as well as rotor wing flying both the MD-500 and the awesome HU-369 helicopter. Patrick had been flying for Guardian since 2015 and had his last check ride just about three months earlier prior to the crash. Now on the day of the accident, Patrick's duty time began at 0600 with plans to end his shift at 1800 and he had already flown about two and a half hours earlier in the day. Now also on board the aircraft was 43-year-old flight paramedic Margaret Langston as well as 30-year-old Stacy Morrison who was also 27 weeks pregnant at the time of this accident. 
Now, the weather across this entire region at the time was visual conditions with very clear skies and light winds of just six knots out of the south. The temperature was two degrees Celsius with a dew point of one degree Celsius. Now, this crew was stationed at a base located in Alaska's capital city of Juneau. And on January 29th, 2019, the crew had just flown a patient up to Anchorage when they received another flight request to pick up a patient from Cake, Alaska. Now, Cake is a super tiny town that is located all all the way on the northwest coast of Kupernoff Island, which is a part of the greater Alexander Archipelago Islands in southeastern Alaska. The population of this city is just over 500, with 15% of those people living below the poverty line. This village, like many others, is not accessible by roads and is only accessible by boat or air. Now, Cake does have its own publicly owned airport, which is listed as AFE and is located in class golf airspace and is a non-tower controlled airport with a single asphalt runway with a 1129 configuration and was served with instrument approach procedures and pilot controlled lighting of the runway lights, which means that the runway lights are normally turned off, but pilots are able to manually turn the lights on by turning to a unique radio frequency for their respective airport and then keying up on their radio in a certain sequence to turn on the lights and even control the intensity of the lights by how many times they click to key up on the radio. Now, at 1604 hours local time, the aircraft departed Ted Stevens Anchorage International Airport in Anchorage as a Part 91 IFR positioning flight destined for Cake Airport. And at 1806, the radar controller cleared the pilot for the RNAV approach to runway 11 at Cake Airport, which the pilot did confirm. Yankee Cross and Guide are above 7,000. You're cleared for the RNAV runway 11 approach to Cake Airport. Top Guide are above 7,000. Cleared for the RNAV 11 approach to Cake at 1807, the pilot advised he was inbound to the Semgo waypoint and the controller advised the pilot to change his frequency, which again, the pilot did confirm. At 3 Lima Yankee, Semgo. At 3 Lima Yankee, Roger, change to advisory frequency approved. Okay, we're switching today. Now, the ADSB data reveals that the airplane then crossed the Semgo waypoint on the RNAV runway 11 approach at an altitude of about 7,000 feet above sea level and then turned northeast and crossed the Zolko initial approach fix at about 5,000 feet MSL. Now, up until this point, everything was completely normal and then things really started to deteriorate. The airplane then initiated a gradual descent and continued northeast toward the Jojo intermediate fix. Now, at about 1810, while the flight was between between Zolko and Jojo, the airplane entered a right turn toward a southerly heading and began a rapid descent, losing about 2,500 feet of altitude in just 14 seconds. The last radar data point was at 1810 when the airplane was at 1,300 feet MSL and heading about 143 degrees with a ground speed of 174 knots. Now there were witnesses at the Cake Airport, presumably part of the team that was awaiting the airplane in order to assist with transferring the patient, and they did note that they saw the pilot-controlled runway lights illuminate, which presumably occurred due to the pilot of this aircraft keying up the appropriate frequency on his radio. But the airplane never reached the airport and instead impacted the waters of Frederick Sound. 
Now, remember that this accident took place on January 29th, 2019, and after the plane never made it to Cake, I can only imagine the anxiety and the concern that everyone in the Alaskan flight community must have felt as they heard that an aircraft had gone missing. The very next day, on January 30th, the airplane debris was located about 22 miles west of Cake, floating on the surface of the water near Point Gardner in the Chatham Strait. It then took recovery teams 48 days to find the wreckage, which must have been an absolute nightmare for everyone involved having to wait that long. Now, with the assistance of remote-operated vehicles, the wreckage was found on March 19, 2019 at a depth of about 500 feet. And just a few days later, and over the span of five days, recovery crews, again with the assistance of those remotely-operated vehicles, recovered most of the airplane's major components from the ocean floor and transported them to Juneau, Alaska for investigation. Now, the aircraft did have an Artex C406-1 emergency locator transmitter, otherwise known as an ELT, which can send emergency signals to satellites for tracking purposes, but these really would only work on the surface of the ocean and would not serve their purpose if and when the aircraft sank as quickly as it probably did. Now, unfortunately, none of these bodies were recovered and all three of them were presumed dead and lost at sea. Now, an extremely thorough investigation immediately began with the focus being on two main items, the major components of the airplane and the cockpit voice recorder. Now, every last piece of the aircraft was examined and tested, and they found that the engines were making power at the time of impact, and that there were no identifiable issues with any of the control surfaces or the linkages or cables with the very small exception of a tiny discrepancy between the flaps, but ultimately they concluded that even if this small discrepancy was noticeable during flight, it would not have had anything to do with losing control of the aircraft. And while this was rated as a six-seat aircraft, there were only five seats due to the patient loading system. There were a total of five seats with five restraints. Now you would think that a human would have been sitting in at least three of them, right? Well. Two of the seats recovered were from the front of the plane in the cockpit, and neither of them had their restraints buckled, including one of the seats in the rear of the airplane. Now, the airplane was not equipped, nor was it required to be equipped, with a flight data recorder, which could have provided data as to the parameters that the plane was operating under, as well as any and all pilot inputs. So then, the focus has now shifted completely to the cockpit voice recorder. And as I said earlier, the airplane was not required to have a cockpit voice recorder, but it did have a functioning Fairchild A100S solid-state cockpit voice recorder installed. Now, this recorder will record a minimum of the previous 30 minutes of audio, and once the hard drive becomes full, it will start to record over the oldest audio. Now, during the initial inspection, no data could be extracted as the connecting points between a ribbon cable and the board were too badly corroded and damaged, but they were actually able to solder in a new connector on the board and use a brand new ribbon cable, and then they were finally able to extract clean audio from the recorder. And when investigators listened to the clean 30 minutes of audio, they were a bit baffled as they heard audio that contained dialogue for an IFR clearance flight from Fort Yukon Airport in Alaska over to Fairbanks, Alaska. This obviously was not the accident flight, and the investigators were left quite confused at this point. As they listened further, they noted that an ESPN radio broadcast was being received 
received by the recorder with a very specific halftime report of a game six of an NBA basketball playoff game between the Golden State Warriors and the Memphis Grizzlies. Now their radio report specifically could be heard stating that the halftime score was 58 to 49 with Golden State leading. A quick and easy search of NBA records showed that the only occurrence of any NBA playoff game six where Golden State was leading Memphis at halftime 58 to 49 was on May 15th, 2015, which means that nothing had been recorded on this cockpit voice recorder for the previous three and a half years prior to the accident flight. Now, according to the manufacturer, a cockpit voice recorder self-test must be successfully accomplished prior to the flight. And back in 2006, the FAA did put out a safety alert for operators specifically related to the functional test of the cockpit voice recorder prior to the first flight of the day, with the FAA recommending that all directors of operations and chief pilots should ensure that all training requirements for testing of cockpit voice recorders are emphasized during initial and recurrent training. All pilots of aircraft equipped with a cockpit voice recorder should test the function of the cockpit voice recorder before the first flight of each day as part of an approved aircraft checklist. But this procedure was not included in Guardian Flight's FAA-approved checklist. Why? I don't know but technically it was not required because the aircraft was not required to have the cockpit voice recorder in the first place. Now, I did reach out to Guardian to ask them what steps have been taken to ensure that their cockpit voice recorders are operational in the future, and they told me that, we generated a maintenance memo, we performed a fleet audit, we tested all cockpit voice recorders and underwater locator beacons, and added the cockpit voice recorder test to the 12-month avionics checks. Now obviously, having the cockpit voice recorder operational would not have prevented this accident, but it certainly would have led to a more thorough understanding of why the aircraft crashed in the first place. But the fact that Guardian did in fact make a change to their processes for these recorders hopefully will help us have a better understanding of the crashes that have since taken place in Hawaii and Nevada. And in the end, man, you're gonna hate this, the NTSB's probable cause was a loss of control for reasons that could not be determined based on the available information. So in other words, we don't know. And given the circumstances, this is quite unique, but I do understand how they could not offer any further conclusion other than a loss of control. They couldn't find anything wrong with the aircraft. They couldn't find the bodies, which meant they couldn't perform autopsies. And the one piece of data that could have helped them, the cockpit voice recorder, was not configured properly by the operator. And as far as I know, there was a single lawsuit that came from this accident, which was filed by the fiance of Stacy, the flight nurse who was pregnant at the time. This lawsuit was eventually settled in 2021 with the details of the lawsuit remaining sealed and confidential. Now fast forward to just a couple months ago on December 15th, 2022, where another Guardian Beechcraft King Air, this time a C90A model with an eerily similar tail number of N13GZ crashed off the coast of Maui while on its way to pick up a patient on the big island of Hawaii. There is not yet a final report on this case, but what we do know is this. At about 2055 hours local time, the flight took off with the pilot, Brian Trepto, flight paramedic Gabriel Camacho, and flight nurse Courtney Perry. 
The weather was clear but very dark and the flight began its pathway around the north part of Maui and subsequently made all the appropriate communications and climbed to all of the appropriate altitudes. The pilot was finally instructed to turn towards an approach fix called Tammy for Waimea Kohala Airport to which the pilot did acknowledge. But just a few seconds later at 2113, after being contacted again by ATC for confirmation of his intentions to fly direct to Tammy, the pilot stated, quote, uh, 13GZ is off navigation here. We're gonna, we're gonna give it a try. The controller heard this and then instructed the pilot to turn to 170 and maintain 8,000. When the controller then heard the pilot's final communication, which simply said, hang on. There was a witness to this crash who was flying a Piper PA-44 who stated that he could easily see the lights of the aircraft and quote, as the airplane continued southbound, it began a right turn and then it entered a spiraling right descending turn which steepened as the descent increased. This pilot then watched the airplane continue to descend until it impacted the surface of the water. The plane was issued as missing at 2127 by the FAA with the Coast Guard doing an extremely extensive search and not finding the wreckage or survivors and only finding some of the surface debris. Eventually, the search was then called off four days later on December 19th. Now, this aircraft did also have a cockpit voice recorder as well as a Duquesne underwater acoustic beacon, which the airplane in Alaska didn't have. Even though this aircraft crashed in waters that were nearly 6,000 feet deep, they were able to recover the wreckage in all three bodies on January 10th, 2023. Now, this aircraft obviously was out of control when it crashed into the waters, but at this point, there is just not enough information from the investigation to know anything else. And then, to make things worse, just 48 hours before making this recording, another fatal crash took place with a Guardian fixed-wing aircraft, this time doing business as the local company of Remsa Health Care Flight out of Nevada. Now, this crash was tail number N273SM and was a beautiful Pilatus PC-12 with a single Pratt & Whitney Canada PT6A 67B turboshaft engine. The flight crew were transporting a patient and a family member from Reno, Nevada to Salt Lake City, Utah, when it crashed soon after takeoff near Stagecoach, Nevada. I mean, it certainly appears that the pilot was working through his normal takeoff procedures and following an IFR flight and probably had the autopilot on during the first part of this flight, but at some point, and I have no idea why, maybe because the pilot accidentally turned it off, maybe because of icing conditions, or maybe because of some super crazy turbulence and strong loads on the aircraft, for some reason the autopilot must have been shut off, and then the pilot must have began flying the plane manually. And not long after that, the plane enters this right descending turn and then eventually continues to slowly spiral and increase in speed and rate until the tail and the right wing eventually become separated from the aircraft, possibly due to high G forces, with the plane finally impacting the ground while traveling at a staggering rate of somewhere between 15 and 20,000 feet per minute. But the problem is, is, it's really hard to tell whether or not the pilot was still flying the plane when it was in this circling right-hand turn, or if the plane had already somehow broken completely apart in the air, and now the pieces are all just sort of falling out of the sky at a high rate of speed. But either way, there are very little details of this crash other than the fact that the pilot Scott Walton, flight paramedic Ryan Watson, flight nurse Ed Percola, and the patient Mark Rand, along with his wife Terry, were all killed in this accident. So, 
We have three crashes here, a King Air 200, a King Air C90, and a Pilatus PC12. We have a total of 11 fatalities and zero answers. I sure do hope that the Hawaii life crash and care flight crashes yield more data for the investigators than the Alaska accident did. These are wonderful aircraft with tons of technology, with lots of expertise, and innocent medical professionals, a patient, and their family members all on the losing end of these tragedies. This is absolutely not sustainable, and I certainly hope that some new knowledge and change can come from these last two investigations. Now, I don't really wanna put the cart before the horse because we really don't know the conclusions of any of these three accidents, but the similarities between all three of them is absolutely unsettling. There are a couple common themes that I wanna mention before finishing this story. Now, all three of these accidents took place in just about the absolute darkest environments on this planet. The first crash was in Alaska over Frederick Sound on a clear night with no moon. The second crash was in between Maui and Hawaii on a clear night. And the third crash was in the middle of absolutely nowhere near Stagecoach, Nevada in windy and snowy weather. All three pilots were very experienced in their geographical areas. All three crashes appear to have begun with a right turn that then led to some form of rapid descent and spiraling out of control until impacting either the water or the ground. Me, these are absolutely prime conditions for spatial disorientation. And they were all flying single pilot. The workload of a pilot flying IFR during part 91 or 135 is absolutely through the roof, especially during critical phases of flight like takeoffs, landings, and approaches, and all three of these crashes happen during these three critical phases of flight. Does spatial disorientation happen in dual pilot configurations? Yes, it has been documented and confirmed that that does happen, but it is extremely rare compared to single pilot. The purpose of dual pilot is twofold, is to decrease the workload on both of them and to be able to cross-check off of each other, neither of which can take place with just a single pilot. With so many lives lost in the air ambulance community over the past 30 years, I believe the time has come and passed for us to require dual pilots for any Part 135 operation, especially with air ambulances. I will have follow-ups on the Hawaii and Nevada crashes someday, probably in a year or two when the investigations are completed, so please stay tuned. But until then, keep looking out for one another, and I will see you guys on the next episode.